Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Jace Lington. I'm the research director here at the Antonin Scalia Law School's Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Today is part two of our webinar series on equity in the administrative state. You don't mean, need me to tell you that debates surrounding equity and public policy have been front and center for recent years. From recent court decisions about college admissions to President Biden's day one executive order on advancing racial equity, these issues keep making headlines. Our three speakers today have written essays that will soon appear in a symposium published by the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy, and we're grateful for the chance to preview their papers with today's discussion and on our podcast. Just as a housekeeping note, as you listen to today's panel discussion, please use the call-in feature on your screen to send me questions. Don't worry, you won't appear on the video, but I'll write down the questions you send in, and then at the end of the program, I'll come back on to share them with our panelists. But before we get started, let me introduce Camille Foster, who will be moderating today's conversation. Camille is head of content at Founders Fund. He's a media entrepreneur, commentator, and regular contributor to various national publications. And prior to Founders Fund, Camille was a partner at Freethink, a digital media company focused on the people and ideas changing our world. And while at Freethink, he co-founded the popular media criticism podcast, The Fifth Column. He's a staunch defender of free speech and serves on the board of directors at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Thanks for joining us, and Camille, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much to the Gray Center and the Georgetown uh, Journal of Law and Public Policy. I'm really delighted to be able to participate in this conversation. I think there have been very few opportunities to have a meaningfully diverse uh, group of experts weigh in on these um, very contested issues. Uh, and there was a reference earlier to the recent executive order, I suppose the, the 2021 Biden administration executive order. Um, that kind of ushered in uh, a much more assertive um, effort to try and achieve equity through public policy. But this is really a tale of two executive orders. Uh, the Trump administration had its own effort um, to, to try and do something in this arena. And I think there's something really telling about the fact that you can actually look at the titles of these two executive orders and not necessarily know which is which. Um, one is the executive order on combating race and sex stereotyping. The other is an executive order on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. Now, if you're a keen observer of these issues, you know right away which is which. But if you're not, if you're someone who simply believes in diversity, who uses words like equality, who even insists on saying things like Black Lives Matter, it's entirely possible that you think both of these things are about the same. Um, and I think that that has contributed to some of the consternation and confusion around these issues. Um, so I'm grateful to be, uh, to have the opportunity to, to kind of moderate this discussion uh, between three really capable academics who have very unique perspectives on these issues and can give us some sensibility about exactly how these discussions about equity, about diversity and equity and inclusion are playing out uh, in the context of the administrative state. So what we'll do here is give everyone about 10 or 15 minutes to kind of walk you through um, the papers that they have coming and then have a bit of a discussion about this. And then towards the end, we will reserve some time for Q&A. Um, so 
With that said, I'm going to jump into doing what will be inadequate introductions because they have illustrious careers, they are published in very many places, but uh, custom demands that I do something. So I will be brief. I will allow them to provide any other color that they would like to as we go forward. Um, but again, I'm, I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity. So Jesse, I believe you had agreed to go first. Jesse Miram is a professor at Patrick Henry College. He brings a wealth of knowledge in constitutional law and legal theory. Um, and his scholarship has delved into originalist constitutional interpretations and legal conservatism. Um, Jesse, I believe your paper was called Why DEI Won't Die. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. That's very memorable. I'd love to have you walk us through some of that. Okay, thank you uh, so much, Jason and Camille, for that introduction. Um, I should probably start in explaining my essay by um, explaining that I'm not a law professor. Uh, I have a JD, but I ended up getting my PhD uh, at Johns Hopkins um, and a master's in philosophy also at, at Johns Hopkins. And at um, Hopkins, when getting my, my graduate degrees, I really became interested uh, less in legal doctrine and more in terms of how courts create social change through their decision making. When I entered graduate school, I was under the assumption, as I think most lawyers are, that pretty much all the change that we've experienced, whether it's in terms of abortion rights or affirmative action or race relations, anything, um, comes essentially from how the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution or at least statutory law. Well, I quickly learned, as part of getting my uh, political science PhD, that there's a lot of debate over this subject uh, among judicial politics scholars, and it's a little bit more complicated than I, I had assumed. So when I started thinking about affirmative action, uh, which is relatively recently, I wrote my first major law review article on it a few years ago, uh, I came to the subject from a different perspective. I was less interested in what interests the average law professor, which is, you know, the doctrinal uh, questions surrounding Bakke and Grutter, whether diversity is a compelling interest and how strict scrutiny should operate in this context, and less interested in it as a political matter, whether affirmative action is beneficial, whether it's harmful, whether it's just. Those are, you know, questions that I've thought about, of course, but they're not really the intellectual um, questions that I've been grappling with over the last few years. The intellectual questions that I've been grappling with are really what makes affirmative action unique in our polity. And the way that I've framed its uniqueness is that I can't think of another program in really all of American history that has been this intractable um, in the face of growing legal resistance. So by growing legal resistance, I'm really pointing to three indicators of resistance. One, we have various state referenda. Um, we have about a fifth of the states, I think it's currently nine, uh, with bans on affirmative action, and that's stretching back uh, over 25 years. We have had a lot of Supreme Court decisions on affirmative action, of course. The first one is DeFunis, which is dismissed on jurisdictional grounds, but then we have Bakke in 78. So we have over you know, 45 years of case law dealing with affirmative action, over a dozen cases. And most of those cases have actually invalidated the program that has come before the court. Um, and yet affirmative action persists. And then we have a lot of public polling. So polling on affirmative action began in the late 70s um, in light of the Bakke controversy. And 
there's been consistent opposition against affirmative action. And that opposition has actually been growing over time. So usually when you have a bunch of states banning something, the Supreme Court saying it's unconstitutional to do that thing, and you have the vast majority of the public saying, I don't like that thing, that thing is going to go away, right? That's generally the way things work. Um, for some reason, affirmative action does not go away. And not only does it not go away, during this time in which states are passing laws and the Supreme Court is issuing its decisions and the public is you know, expressing its opposition, affirmative action not only sustains, but it broadens, right? So affirmative action begins um, you know, according to Justice Powell in his uh, Baki appendix, uh, affirmative action can be traced to Harvard in 1948. Um, and that is pretty much verified by um, the book, the, the Chosen, which kind of documents, documents how affirmative action emerges at the, the big three. And you see Harvard starting to do some things in the late 40s and early 1950s. By the middle of the 50s, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton pretty much have established affirmative action programs. They're identifiable. Um, they're not formal, but they're identifiably affirmative action. By the 1960s, all the Ivies have affirmative action. Um, I think all the elite liberal arts colleges do, uh, if not all, the majority. Um, and then a lot of public um, universities have it as well. But the 1970s is such a central feature of higher education that one of the first things that UC Davis Medical School does, of course, in being created is, let's create an affirmative action program. So we have it broadening outside of the, the big three to pretty much encompass, and not just encompass, but define the very enterprise of higher education in the United States. Um, and it strengthens um, in the process. So the goal that Harvard, Yale, and Princeton set out in the 1960s was around 5% for African-Americans. That grows to about 10%. And then in the SVSFFA decision, we're dealing with a program that is shooting for about 14 to 15%. So the preferences have grown, the, the numeric goals have grown. So there's something very odd here in that we have the Supreme Court saying you can't do it, the public saying we don't want it, state law saying you can't do it, and it's broadening to encompass pretty much all of higher education, and the preferences are growing. So I have investigated in various essays what is going on here. So when I was tasked with writing this piece, I thought, well, I don't want to take up the exact same issues. Um, you know, why are scholars always so wrong? And, you know, that's been a big part of what I've been writing about on this issue, that scholars keep on predicting the demise of affirmative action. It's actually quite entertaining to go through each decision that goes before the Supreme Court. You find not just scholars, but like the leading scholars in the country saying this is the end of affirmative action. It happens in 78. It happens, uh, you know, that's with Baki. It happens with Adirond. It happens with um, Hopwood. It happens with Grutter, right? So time and time, Fisher, yet again. So I collect in one of my articles, like seven pages or something of citations um, of just leading scholars continuously getting it wrong. So in this article, I didn't want to go through all that again. What I wanted to do is to kind of move beyond the doctrinal questions um, and you know, why scholars have been wrong and start thinking about, well, what makes a movement effective and why, in light of that, has the anti-affirmative action movement been so uh, ineffective?
Um, and this really gets into a lot of uh, judicial politics research, and we don't need to get into all the details. But generally, the, the consensus, and I'm, this is kind of my putting together all of the, the research on the subject. Um, people have different theories that I'm kind of assimilating. Um, you generally need an effective support structure in order to oppose affirmative action, to, to create any sort of social change. Right? The way that you get the civil rights movement is through the NAACP having a strategy and it binding its agents through an actual support structure, meaning that it can bind sympathetic plaintiffs, it can find the right courts to bring the, the cases in, and could develop a cohesive legal strategy. Uh, and of course, in the NAACP case, we're talking about Nathan Margold's 1930 memorandum that essentially marches through how you get from challenging restrictive covenants, which of course produces Shelley in 1948, uh, ultimately to Brown v. Board, um, and the goal is obviously to go beyond Brown. So that's an example of an effective support structure. Well, I look at uh, the affirmative action context, and one reason it's been unsuccessful is that it hasn't had an effective support structure. Um, People think of the Federalist Society as being an effective support structure, but it doesn't litigate cases. It doesn't uh, make affirmative action a, a major issue. And it's really coalesced around originalism rather than any particular political agenda, which is in sharp contrast with how groups like the NAACP and the ACLU have operated, uh, not moored or tethered to a particular legal theory, but rather to a particular political or legal agenda. So that's one feature of why I think it has failed. Um, now, of course, there is the Center for Individual Rights, but it's a relatively small organization um, that doesn't have the power to bring cases uh, all around the country, certainly not in the sort of strategic way that would be required. The second thing that's required uh, is a nexus to a political movement. Courts cannot create change by themselves, uh, and that's a major problem uh, that we're going to find with the SFFA decision, right, the Students for Fair Admissions decision dealing with Harvard and UNC. The court can pronounce those programs unconstitutional, but as we're going to see, and we're already seeing, and I think we have evidence of this the other day when the court denied cert um, in the uh, Fairfax County case, that you need political actors to make this a political issue to create a broader movement. Um, and that is not something that has happened with affirmative action. It can't be that you're just litigating cases and getting uh, the outcomes that you want. Um, especially when you're dealing with something of this magnitude. Um, and I think that uh, the fact that we have, I think Camille's right to start this conversation with the, the Biden executive order, something that has come to be such a defining part of the American entity, identity, and such a big part of a American enterprise, right? We have major corporations that are on board with this. Uh, you see with the, the uh, Harvard and UNC case, there's a record uh, number of amicus briefs filed by corporations, I believe all in favor of affirmative action. That's not something you'll be able to challenge through mere litigation. Um, and then the third thing is that you'll need some sort of moral framework to substantiate the movement in the public sphere. And that may be the area where uh, the anti-affirmative action movement will face its greatest uh, uh, difficulty in that the, the moral narrative has essentially been controlled um, by you know what you could describe as the civil rights morality. And that's why I think the Biden and Trump executive orders look so similar, um, because they're essentially appealing to the same norms of discrimination and diversity um, for a slightly different purpose. But they look so similar because they're essentially appealing to the same morality. 
um, and appealing to that morality is going to be a problem for those who want to work against what has become such a big part of the civil rights framework. All right, I think that uh, is probably a good place to leave off, and you know, we could pick up some of these issues in the conversation. Great. Thank you so much, Jesse. And I definitely want to return to some of those uh, rhetorical similarities um, and get into, I guess, do some of the lexicographical work that's necessary to really understand the different ways that they're interpreting words like equality and diversity and discrimination. Because um, I think that's that's really the crux of the issue here. Um, going to go to our next uh, panelist here. Uh, Professor Ming Chen is at the University of California Law, San Francisco, where I am also, uh, and is the director of the Center on Race, Immigration, Citizenship, and Equality. She's the author of Pursuing Citizenship in the Enforcement Era and, contribu- and a contributor to the Immigration uh, Prof blog, <clears throat> excuse me, Race and, Race and Regulatory Equ- Equity is the name of the article that you've drafted, um, and that is going to be appearing here. So I'd love to give you an opportunity to provide a preview of that particular paper so we can uh, get into a discussion of it. Great. Thank you so much for having me and for convening this discussion about, as you said, uh, what seems to be a shifting landscape um, around race, equity, and the role of regulation um, in shaping all of that. Um, So it's in that spirit that I wrote this essay, Race and Regulatory Equity, um, using affirmative action and legacy admissions in this this new landscape um, as a way of investigating these broader questions about how norms of uh, race and regulatory equity are now shifting. So what I want to do is to give a very brief background, because Jesse's done a lot of that work for me already, um, in situating some of the um, current debates. um, And then I want to sort of zoom out a little bit to return to these bigger questions, um, understanding, again, that affirmative action is a site of real contestation um, and real significance in terms of um, policy salience. Um, And yet it is one of several different sites where we could have this broader discussion or debate about how race and equity are playing out um, in public life. So let me just start for a moment with um, affirmative action. Um, I think the starting point would have to be the Constitution, right, and looking at the 14th Amendment and its equal protection guarantees um, and the different ways that those words have been interpreted Uh, by the two sides, if you will. But as we get into this, actually, I'm going to highlight three sides, but but minimally by the two sides, right? And having an interpretation of equality that is largely uh, consistent with the civil rights framework, right? That also developed in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, So you have their language um, in the Equal Protection Clause that simply says that no no state shall make or enforce laws that deny the equal protection of law. So that's our starting point. It's pretty broad and open textured. um, And so it is subject to competing interpretations. Um, The Civil Rights Act, I think, does set in place and set in motion what is kind of a legal baseline for affirmative action up until the Students for Fair Admissions case uh, that was decided just last year. Right. And the language of Title VI um, in some ways mirrors the Equal Protection Clause, but it is more specific Right. It says that no person shall be denied the benefits of programs that receive public finances um, on the basis of race, color, national origin and a host of other protected categories. 
right? And so it's both more specific than the Equal Protection Clause and also somewhat broader um, in that it applies to both state and private institutions. So that, I take, is to be the legal baseline, right, that brings us into these affirmative action cases. Um, and I'll skip the cases that Jesse's already talked about um, and just jump to the Grutter and Gratz cases um, in 2003 um, that I think are in starkest contrast to the decision last year, the Students for Fair Admissions um, against Harvard. So Grutter and Gratz um, you know, stand for this principle put together um, that college admissions programs that use race as a plus factor in admissions can serve a compelling interest, um, including the educational benefits of diversity, right? And Grutter kind of puts forward that principle based on what was happening with the University of Michigan's law school. And on the same day, the Gratz case was decided, looking at University of Michigan's undergraduate program, um, and it puts a limit on Grutter, right? What it says is diversity might be a compelling interest, and yet the admission plan must be narrowly tailored, right? And so on that day, the Supreme Court decided a program like this could exist, but there are going to be parameters, Right. And I think so the tension is built in from that day when both of those cases are decided. Now, you see a lot of engagement um, in the legislative level. Um, you know, I am in California, like Camille, Proposition 209 was certainly part of that and the sort of revisiting of that issue just in the last five years. Um, but it's really in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard that I think you see the most sort of frontal engagement with this issue again. Right. So in Students for Fair Admissions, um, we have a case that I think many would say we're still figuring out what the um, aftermath is going to look like. But I think many would say that it's at least fair uh, to say that this case starkly limits the principles of Greider and Gratz, if not outright overturns them. Right? It draws into question whether race can and should be a compelling interest. Um, and it also draws into question exactly what it will take for a university to design a plan that is sufficiently narrowly tailored that it could survive constitutional scrutiny, right? So everything I've talked about so far is, is pretty much in the realm of constitutional norms. Um, and what I want to shift to at this point is the regulatory framework, because I understand that to be something that the Boyden Gray Center has been really focused on. Um, and I think in my essay is probably the unique element that I'm trying to add to the conversation is to think about what these legal principles mean against the landscape of, you know, what Camille called the tale of two executive orders, right, on racial equity, right? Because that's landscapes. Um, the Students for Fair Admissions case is decided in 2023, right? And Biden's memos on racial equity are coming out in 2021, 2023, and then immediately after this Supreme Court case, you have a memorandum um, jointly issued by the Department of Education and the Department of Justice in August 2023 about how to continue diversity in higher education even in the aftermath of this Supreme Court decision, right? So all of this is unfolding at the same time. And I think there tends to be a lot more attention to the doctrine. Uh, but like Jesse, I'm a JD PhD, so I'm attentive to the doctrine, uh, but that doesn't contain the entirety of my interests um, in these issues either. Um, so let me switch gears a little bit. Um, what I want to do is throw out some ideas um, that 
admittedly are a little bit speculative, but I thought this would be a fun conversation um, given that we do have a range of viewpoints on the panel. So I thought it would be a fun conversation to sort of put those out. Um, so in the landscape of those um, executive orders, I thought it would be interesting to think about the kinds of analytical frameworks that have become really common in regulation and to use them as a way to investigate how affirmative action can continue to be implemented, right? And so the three perspectives that I'm trying to highlight um, in, in my essay um, are what I'll call for shorthand a conservative perspective um, that might hew a little bit more closely to um, what Jesse in his essay called the anti-woke or new right perspective. Um, secondly, in, in the middle ground, or I don't know if it's really middle, it's, it's probably somewhere a little bit to the left, um, but a progressive or neoliberal perspective. And then even further to the left, and I don't even know that this is really part of the policy discussion, this is probably returning to academia, um, is the more critical perspective um, that has sort of self-described as the non-reformist approach to reforms, right? So I wanted to kind of take up those three broad strokes um, in order to identify just a couple core principles and what they could mean um, as we continue to think about the life of affirmative action. So let me start with the, I just want to check myself on time. Let me start with the, the first of these perspectives. Um, and I, I'm happy to be told that these are not an accurate representation, but I'm trying to boil it down to things that I think are, are probably true, right? That someone in one of these camps would recognize. Um, so I think if there are three guiding principles I can think about that would be a more conservative perspective on regulatory reform, one would be that the role of the regulatory state should be relatively modest. Um, secondly, that cost-benefit analysis and efficiency are really important to justify the need for any regulations to take hold. Right? And thirdly, that a more formalist interpretation of these equality laws would constrain the implementation of things like Biden's executive orders um, and caution against promoting race consciousness um, in the continuation of affirmative action and admissions programs, right? So those are three principles that I think would be guiding principles for this more conservative read on regulation. And some of the ways that I think that that could play out um, in terms of thinking about affirmative action, um, one would be, and I, and I ask this with the question mark because this might go to the persistence and the stickiness of affirmative action, um, but the modest regulatory state, I think, would speak to an expected deference to state legislatures and universities, um, but an expected one that maybe isn't quite playing out um, in the Students for Fair Admissions case. Um, secondly, the idea of cost-benefit analysis and efficiency, needing to justify even having the intervention of a public policy, I think that that would probably mostly limit affirmative action policies. Um, that promote racial diversity given the cost of tuition, financial aid, recruitment, retention for underrepresented students. Um, this is, again, in the frame of cost-benefit analysis as we know it, right, which I think many have said leans a little bit more toward weighting the costs of a program without necessarily weighing the benefits quite as heavily. Um, and then thirdly, this dispute over the meaning of equality um, is I think one way that might play out is that the substantive value of racial diversity or really any diversity shouldn't compromise the procedural value of fairness or equity toward individuals. 
So maybe that would be the beginning of that moral framework um, that this side would put forward. I, I agree that it hasn't taken full shape, but that's sort of what I understand to be the zeitgeist of that framework. Right. So I don't, I, I'm seeing nods. So hopefully I haven't done any grave injustices. Um, but let me put that in, in um, contrast to the other perspectives. And I might need to, maybe I'll focus on one of the two instead of uh, just for the sake of time. Um, so if we were to take what I'm considering sort of left of center, um, the progressive or more neoliberal perspective, um, I think as a first principle, uh, the idea would be at least beginning with the civil rights movement. You could back it up to the New Deal administration or something else. Uh, but that the regulatory state is obligated to have a very active role in advancing educational equity, right? Um, secondly, that cost-benefit analysis ought to emphasize the benefits of regulation and to be pretty expansive in thinking about what those benefits should look like. Right. And we have a movement of mostly law professors um, who have moved into organizations like OIRA um, that implements many of these um, orders um, that has made a point of sort of changing the way we measure cost benefit analysis to move in this direction. Right. That thinks more about benefits. So if I pause there for a moment, that idea of the regulatory state being obligated to advance educational equity, I think you would see that in terms of things like Biden's executive orders, encouraging universities to push these DEI kinds of values through their affirmative action programs. Um, in the encouragement of the DOJ and Department of Education memorandum that was released last year um, to think about ways to level the playing field Right. So if race conscious admissions are going to be constrained, what can universities do to mitigate the cost of tuition, to expand on financial aid, um, to really invest in recruitment and retention of underrepresented minorities, um, and to think about the long term benefits of diversity that come from empowering a group that's traditionally been underrepresented um, in universities, understanding that education on the one hand is a case study. But it's a great case study and a gateway to thinking about education because it does unlock so many continuing effects of equality, right? Education leads to jobs. It leads to buying power for real estate. Um, it leads to businesses. I mean, so, so on and so forth, right? And so um, I think the this particular view would highlight the long-term benefits that come from promoting racial diversity within universities within the bounds um, that I've been describing. Right, so I'll spend just the briefest of moments on this even more left perspective, um, which again, I think is probably less in the public policy debate and a little bit more in the academic chatter. Um, but this would be to say that the regulatory state insufficiently advances educational equity. So ironically, we are coming full circle in some ways. I think there's a real skepticism of the regulatory state even if it's for different reasons, right? Secondly, that cost-benefit analysis is inherently anti-regulatory and that the use of formal institutions, including law and these kinds of executive orders, embed a structural racism that is pretty difficult to undo with any of these kinds of policy fixes um, that this liberal progressive regime is talking about. 
um, and that the attention should instead be to look at root causes of inequity, right? And I'm, I'm excited to hear Vigil's remarks because I know she's been thinking a lot about structural inequality. Um, but in the context of affirmative action, I think things like focusing on K through 12 education before even looking at higher education, right? I saw one response that said, uh, all these conversations about higher education are coming 18 years too late, right? So thinking about root causes, thinking about school finance and how that shapes K through 12 education, thinking about patterns of residential segregation and housing, thinking about racial capitalism. And that probably adds up to um, a set of programs that are largely outside of this discussion about affirmative action in colleges. To the extent that it's in it, it's talking more about pipeline programs, top 10 programs, zip code diversity, um, class-based programs that maybe go to more the roots of this kind of inequality um, than the public policies as, as we've constructed them. So I'll go ahead and pause there. I think maybe I'll throw one question into the four because I think it might sort of be potentially a unifying thread. Um, the way that I think about the lingering question is to what extent these recent developments, these two tales of executive orders, unsettled the prevailing racial regulatory order around racial equity, right? How, are, how much are we unsettling that order? And this might be a little in the weeds, but what forms and measures of diversity and equity should count for the purpose of thinking about educational equity? So I'll pause with those two questions and, and hand over the mic. Great, we'll, we'll definitely come back to that. <clears throat> well, our last presenter, um, certainly not Elise, uh, is Bijal Shah, and I hope I got that right. I'm sure you'll correct me if I didn't. Uh, she's at Boston College, professor at Boston College, recipient of the 2023 Boston College Law Faculty Prize for Excellence. So congrats on that. Obviously doing uh, stellar work, specializing in administrative law and structural constitutionalism. And her work has been very influential um, in on immigration and agency, um, and it's been published in numerous places. Uh, the paper that you've contributed here is called A Critical Take on Formalist Interpretation. I'm sure most of the people watching have some sensibility about what that means, but I, I hope you'll provide a layperson's uh, definition of formalist as well. So hi, everyone. Uh, again, I want to echo my thanks to the organizers at the Gray Center and to Camille and my fellow panelists. So as I was looking at the, the drafts that were shared by my by, by Jesse and Ming, I really was tempted to bring in some of the work I've been doing on sort of structural um, inequities in the administrative state. My, my current agenda is sort of following two separate but related tracks, um, but that wouldn't really reflect the, the, my contribution to the, <laughs> to the symposium. And so I hope you all will bear with me as I take a slight departure from the, the discussion so far. Although I think some of the general, um, concepts, you know, interpretive methodologies, originalism, the impact of decisions in the court on the administrative state and the sort of, you know, uh, downstream effects on the public, um, I do think tap into some of the general, uh, themes of our panel discussion. And I'm sure Camille, as a, an experienced moderator, you'll be able to find connections <laughs> in the discussion uh, for us. So, um, uh, so, so, 
come with me as I take you on a journey to talking about uh, the separation of powers instead of the equal you know, equal rights and affirmative action um, doctrine. Uh, so scholarship in in the separation of powers and in administrative law, sort of separate and apart from affirmative action, uh, discusses norms in particularly narrow and limited ways. Um, and frankly, the I you know the the idea that the separation of powers has a distinct value laden framing of its own has remained underexplored and has not yet been integrated with um with theories of equity including critical legal theories um and in particular critical legal studies which evaluates and seeks to shape legal systems and institutions to foster liberation and equity so critical legal studies, or CLS, um, as described by Roberto Mangabera Unger, asserts that mainstream legal thought remains one more variant of the perennial effort to restate power and preconception as right. And scholars like Sam Moyne and others have noted the continuing relevance of CLS, that it was both the first radical legal theory that placed the conceptualization of domination and the imperative of its unmaking center stage, and that it ought to remain uh, today uh, at center stage as well. Um, so, arose in the 80s, and um, at around the same time, it was posited independently that the that structural constitutionalism, that separation of power, should also move beyond its preoccupation with the method of legal analysis to a level of substantive normative debate. But this didn't happen. Um, so, Rebecca Brown, who's written on this, um, notes that scholarly paradigms addressing the separation of powers still place emphasis not on the prevention of tyranny primarily or on the protection of individual liberties, but on the advancement of institutional interests, um, as if that were a goal in and of itself. Um, so in other words, this has also been reflected in the doctrine, um, uh, the separation of powers decisions by the court, which have generally protected the mechanisms of governmental operations, but don't look beyond any specific case to sort of a higher objective that the separation of powers may serve. Okay, so that's sort of a quick introduction of critical legal studies and its relevance to the separation of powers. Um, my draft looks at sort of particular aspects of the separation of power. So let me give you a quick background on that and then kind of hone in on what it is that I'm looking at. So for those who um, may have uh, may not remember in the moment, um, the two methodologies of constitutional interpretation that separation of power scholars rely on are formalism and functionalism. Um, in really broad strokes, formalist opinions favor bright line rules over standards, text over prudence, and a clear separation between the branches, and functionalism uh, favors more flexible standards, governance that adapts to modern times, um, and interbranch relations that emphasize checks and balances rather than a strict separation. Um, as we, you know, m many may be aware, the center of the separation of powers and frankly, the court's preferred approach to the separation of powers debates um, is formalism. Uh, and in particular, constitutional formalism draws on originalism and textualism as its primary forms of interpretive methodologies based in the view that these tools of interpretation are the most objective and neutral. Uh, really, even progressive constitutional scholars have started to pick their fights within the four corners of formalism instead of advocating for another convention, So, which reinforces the assumption that formalism offers the most important and relevant methods of analysis. Now, I just want to take a, a, a brief moment and say I have a much larger essay coming out that critiques functionalism from the perspective of critical legal studies, and so there is no pinpointing of any particular ideology in my um, sort of research agenda as a whole on this topic. 
But this sort of much shorter piece focuses particularly on formalist interpretive methodologies. Um, and I'm suggesting in this piece that these methodologies should be held to account from a critical legal studies perspective. Um, and so in this vein, I question the extent to which the use of originalism and textualism meets formalism's aims of neutrality and objectivity and wonder whether these methodologies obscure normative policy preferences, uh, possibly to the detriment of the public good. Uh, and so I'll take about 15 minutes total. And so and first I'll run through some concerns with formalist interpretive methodology that reflect the critiques of critical legal studies. These include you know, the arbitrariness of originalists' preferred time frame and documents, including the way that they exclude the perspectives of minorities and women, lack of clarity in textualism, and, uh, you know, what I'll call the selective use of both approaches, including the willingness of the justices to abandon originalism and textualism when it doesn't seem to achieve what might be their preferred ends. Um, and then I'll wrap up by discussing one example of the selective use of a formalist interpretive method that has led to concerning outcomes for the public. More specifically, I'll talk about how the Supreme Court has shown a willingness in the new major questions doctrine to depart from textualism in order to prioritize certain values. Um, okay, so if critical theories have a single rallying cry, it's a rejection of legal formalism in all its forms. Um, more specifically, CLS suggests that claims of formalism and objectivism are unsustainable in light of critical theorists' values and interest in social change. CLS is also insensitive to formalism's inherent tendency towards indeterminacy. In contrast, those who have a hold a formalist view of the separation of powers assert that the structural provisions of the Constitution should be understood first solely by the drafter's original intent, that is originalism, and second by their literal language or textualism. And so formalism, unlike sort of critical theory, doesn't give much weight to the influence of changed circumstances or to broad, broad objectives such as good government. Um, so what exactly are originalism and textualism? Um, for separation of powers formalists, I should say, originalism specifies the, the late 18th century as the point in time and space when the values of, you know, relevant interpretive variables are to be determined, and textualism declares that the meaning of the Constitution is to be found exclusively in the document's text. Um, and as I mentioned, separation of powers formalists tend to believe that originalism and textualism are the best interpretive methodologies. Um, first, they characterize originalism as a rigorous methodology for parsing constitutional structure. Originalism's defenders also argue that relying on past practice um, in the constitutional separation of powers doesn't raise concerns about the oppression of minorities or other disadvantaged groups. Um, likewise, proponents of textualism point to the simplicity and transparency of an approach that focuses solely on the objectively understood meaning of language, independent of ideology and politics. Will Bode, for instance, declares that textualism's objectivity and political neutrality in statutory interpretation, his words, allow judges to, quote, transcend our moral disagreements. So really high praise for this interpretive analysis. Um, but from a critical legal perspective, such claims of rigor, neutrality, and objectivity merit some observation. So let's start with originalism. <clears throat> uh, many scholars assert, and many, many, I won't list you the names, but this is a big, big fight, that originalism is based in idiosyncratic or incorrect historical facts. Um, one interesting argument from Bernadette Myler suggests that originalism fails to incorporate the common law of the colonial time period and to grapple with divergent and equally authoritative understandings of common law that existed during that time. 
Now, um, I too am using conservative as sort of a shorthand, um, and so you'll forgive me because we have a short period of time to speak. But um, some also argue that originalism has roots in particular policy interests based in conservative actors and institutions. So Carrie Franklin finds that originalism was part of a campaign by Reagan-era conservatives to develop antidotes to the judicial activism of the Warren and Berger courts. In other words, it doesn't have this sort of neutral birth. Um, and Richard Fallon argues that the Supreme Court practices selective originalism based on his observation that the originalist justices will sometimes set aside originalism and rest their decisions based partly on policy preferences. So I'll take a moment here actually to connect what I'm talking about to what my fellow panelists have talked about. Fallon notes in particular in Students for Fair Admissions um, that originalist arguments figured more prominently in Justice Sotomayor's dissenting opinion than in the majority opinion in which the six conservative justices all joined. She cites several pieces of reconstruction legislation that include race-based appropriations for categories of certain citizens in support of her conclusion that the text and history of the 14th Amendment make clear that the Equal Protection Clause permits race-conscious measures. So this is just an example of selective originalism that relates to what we've all been talking about. Um, Arguably, the legitimacy of originalism in separation of powers cases in particular is also weakened by the fact that it focuses on how the founders conceived of power. So originalism privileges the views of a minority of powerful individuals during an era of, as Joy Milligan, uh, who's also part of the symposium and Bertrand Ross note, uh, in an era of widespread and systematic exclusion of racial minorities and women from the process of developing the Constitution. So in other words, if you're a separation of powers originalist, you are looking at the late 18th century at documents that were created by a very small community of people that didn't actually reflect the majority's sort of understanding and needs. Um, and that is possibly a, a disqualifier um, or something at least that hinders the legitimacy of those documents as the sole sort of origin of, of this form of interpretation. Um, of course, this methodology also prioritizes historical understandings of what constitutes governmental oppression over the realities of today's societal and institutional power imbalances. Um, okay, so... Now regarding textualism, um, academics argue that textualism is applied inconsistently and without clarity, and that textualist judges are willing to abandon stare decisis. Um, again, Carrie Franklin notes that textualism, like originalism, tends to produce legal outcomes consistent with conservative policy preferences. So this, again, um, is based in some of the history of this, uh, this methodology, which developed alongside originalism um, and was strongly associated with Reagan and Bush judges. And, um, you know, some have deemed textualism a conservative brand, Maggie Lemos in particular, um, today. Um, and then, also like originalism, uh, the Supreme Court arguably practices selective textualism as well. Um, so I think, I think this is a, a short sort of departure, but one worth explaining. Some scholars have observed that some of the values favored by textualist judges, justices like federalism and constraint of the administrative state are substantive canons. So in other words, they're rules of construction that advance values external to a statute. Now, there may be reasons to rationalize these commitments that the justices think they're in keeping with how Congress legislates, that they're supported by the Constitution, they're useful in resolving textual ambiguities, but because their commitment to these values uh, and, and these values themselves are by nature extra statutory, they're inconsistent with textualism, right? They value priorities that don't, that aren't found in the text. And so the, you know, the judge's pursuit of these values is not consistent with their commitment to textualism. 
Um, so, you know, arguably originalism and textualism doesn't necessarily produce determinate answers, may serve to obscure value judgments, um, and may even emphasize particularized methods of interpretation at the expense of good policy outcomes. Um, in the interest of time, I think I'll skip this this piece, but I'll just note that critical legal studies has some really interesting things to say about how formalism deadlocks and restrains state power um, uh, in, 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 and as a result kind of paralyzes its transformative activities, all of which suggests that if you are a formalist who believes in social change, this might not be the best approach or the best set of methodologies because of the fact that um, it ossifies government and doesn't really allow for the participation of people in, in, in governmental change. Um, okay, so before I wrap up, I... Uh, wanted to consider an example of how the Supreme Court has practiced selective textualism in the separation of powers context. Um, and in particular, in a, in sort of a, I think <laughs> it's only in the last five to however many years that admin law has become sexy, but the major questions doctrine is sort of, you know, in the news. And, uh, I thought it would provide an interesting case study for, for this tension. Um, now, just quickly, this new major questions doctrine is an administrative law doctrine. It's in particular a test under which the court won't sustain a major regulatory action unless the statute contains a clear statement that the action is authorized. So in other words, judges viewing agency actions have to determine if the initiative presents a major question by reviewing its novelty and political and economic significance. If the policy raises a major question, the agency has to point to specific statutory authorization for its action or the court will find it to be unauthorized by statute. And this test was established in a case called West Virginia versus EPA in the summer of 2022. Now, according to um, one very outspoken scholar, Adrian Vermeule, this case illustrates that the conservative justices will avoid originalism, textualism, and judicial restraint if it does not serve their purposes. It's his phrasing. Um, and in fact, both functionalists and formalists themselves, including textualist scholars, have uh, argued that the self-proclaimed textualist justices did not apply textualism in West Virginia. Um, and so this is coming from all sides of uh, sort of the ideological and the interpretive spectrum. Uh, folks say that the justices instead relied on separation of powers principles, uh, on the court's practical understanding of legislative intent. One prominent scholar in this area suggests that the court relied on pragmatism um, and their own intuitions. Um, and ultimately, they decided that the Obama administration's clean power plan was not authorized by the Clean Air Act as a result. Um, and so I'll... I'll just um, wrap up with, uh, I think, a quote from Elena Kagan and then a quick, quick note about the, the implications of the new major questions doctrine. Um, you know, Kagan's sort of famous dissent now uh, at this point uh, in West Virginia versus EPA declares, some years ago, I remarked that we're all textualists now. It seems I was wrong. The current court is textualist only when it being so suits it. When that method would frustrate broader goals, special canons like the major questions doctrine magically appear as get out of text free cards. Um, now, a lot of scholars think that an incentive for this doctrine is to revive the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, but to the extent that is the case, it's a substantive canon, as I mentioned earlier, that's inconsistent with textualism. Um, and then as for its impact on justice, the major questions doctrine seems to empower more powerful groups to spark judicial activism against disfavored administrative policies. Um, and Jody Freeman and Matthew Stevenson say it's uh, much more likely to de weaken democratic accountability than strengthen it. Um, 
Uh, in this vein, the new major questions cases have led to the court hindering policies that further the public good. Um, one, one commentator scholar says that West Virginia both exacerbates an oncoming environmental catastrophe and endangers the stability of our political system. A number of cases decided on major questions and validated policies that protected people, including the most vulnerable, from a variety of health and housing consequences of COVID-19. And the court's recent treatment of the doctrine in Biden versus Nebraska invalidated the administration's student loan forgiveness plan at the expense of minority communities facing financial burdens. Um, okay, so thanks for letting me bring in this, uh, this sort of ortho orthogonal project, and I really look forward to our conversation. It's great. Thank you so much. A lot of megatonnage there. Um, I, I want to get the three of you in conversation with one another, but I'd also like to try to... I don't know if ratchet it down a bit is the right phrase, but I'd love to make this accessible to people. And I know that there's a real appetite for having sober discussions about some of the things that I think seem to be mostly like assumed and baked in at this point. Uh, there is a sense in which we have all become very familiar with words like equity, but that's fairly recent for most people. Um, and certainly to see it in, enshrined in the administrative actions and policy uh, in the way that the Biden administration has done, it has been quite novel in many respects. So I'd love to take a step back and just kind of define some basic terms and solicit your perspectives on what equity and equality mean. And if it is appropriate from your standpoint to draw a meaningful distinction between those two things and acknowledge that for many people, myself included, quite frankly, um, when I hear equality, I think about individual protections under the law, that there is, there is a sense of, of addressing ourselves to the individual. And when I hear equity, um, I think about uh, achieving some sort of demographic parity with respect to outcomes. And that actually makes me personally quite uncomfortable. So I can sympathize with a great many people who are upset about these things. And I don't arrive there because of any sort of racial bias or bigotry. Um, it's, it's a genuine belief that there's something really important about the law itself addressing itself to people as individuals and institutions doing precisely the same thing. I have two very young children um, who go to school. And I remember taking my daughter to a new school in, um, <clears throat> in February two years ago. And it was during Black History Month. And I asked myself questions when I saw a lot of the displays in this, in the building, um, as to whether or not they were able to see my daughter as a distinct individual with unique interests and proclivities, or if they were going to categorize her as a black girl and imagine all sorts of things about who she is and where she comes from without really taking her unique circumstances and experiences into account. So it, it feels like a really important point for us to try to arrive at um, some conclusions about, at least to acknowledge that there is a, a real uh, sort of difference of perspectives on these issues that is earnestly held by most people um, and that is worth engaging with in sober ways. So I'm, I'm happy to just kind of open the floor and allow whoever would like to, to weigh in there, but it would be great to get each of your perspectives on kind of this difference between equity and equality and how we make sense of it. I have, I have a thought there. I mean, I think that 
I think that the emphasis of equality on the individual um, is one that I think is accurate to uh, the way that the law has been interpreted. Um, What I think, though, is that there are some differences between understanding which individuals the law is meant to focus on, in particular when we start to move toward regulatory frameworks, right, and not just constitutional baselines. I think of the Constitution as kind of a floor um, and some of these um, executive orders from Biden as being I don't know if they're ceiling, but they're, you know, they're closer to aspirational. They're certainly well above the floor, right? And wanting to ask the state to do more. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think a lot about, um, you know, something I teach with in my own class is Reva Siegel's idea of anti-subordination versus anti-classification as a way of understanding which individuals or individuals who come from which groups. I guess. And so, you know, the idea with anti-subordination is individuals who come from historically disadvantaged groups might be the kinds of people that these equity orders are meant to help, right? Whereas an anti-classification perspective would be a form of the formalism that Bijal was talking about, right? And, And sort of looking for symmetry, almost like a mathematical symmetry, and saying that if a law treats people in one group differently from people in the other group, regardless of who's in each of these groups and what their histories have been in the United States, that that violates principles of equality, right? And so I think that that to me is how I would understand some of the differences between what Biden is trying to do, which I think I agree is is quite ambitious, Um, in wanting to advance a particular vision of what equality looks like with an eye towards specific um, historically disadvantaged groups, Um, in particular, Black, Latino. um, I think there's more attention to Indigenous now. I think Asian Americans have been, um, have a very complicated racial positioning um, in light of this, this choice of which groups we consider to be most marginalized. Is there broad agreement on that? Anyone want to add some more color there? Okay. Um, I just want to add a, a, I think, a complementary point to what Professor Chen is saying. Um, I agree that the anti-subordination, anti-classification distinction gets at a lot of the equality versus equity distinction. And this has been around for a long time. That's why when you were suggesting that this is new, there was a part of me thinking, well, you know, Griggs in creating the disparate impact doctrine is kind of doing equity jurisprudence. If you look at how the Bakke Affirmative Action Program worked, I mean, there's a rigid quota. I mean, it's numeric so that Alan Bakke just can't be considered. That's equality, that's equity, right? So it's a new term that's been kind of mainstreamed. Um, There's a political movement behind it. I don't think it's really operating in a categorically distinct way. I think equity has been working in concert with equality jurisprudence for a very long time, and they both, you know, are part of the civil rights morality I described earlier. And just another point uh, related to what Professor Chen was saying, I think something that we need to think about as scholars, and I think as citizens in general, is that when we talk about this issue, we, for some reason, I mean, none of us is that old in this, uh, <laughs> in this group, we talk about this as though we're operating in like 1980s demographics. Um, this is not the country that you know, was dealing with affirmative action in the 1970s and 80s. This is a country that is now on the precipice of not having an ethnic majority. Right, whites are roughly 60% of the population, whereas in 1980 they're over 80% of the population. 
And then if you look at these schools, right, Stanford's 2026 class is like 22% white. So the schools aren't striving for proportionality in any meaningful sense, right? You have a group that is 60% of the population, and no one cares that, you know, at Harvard, it's something like 38% of, of its um, student body. And at Stanford, it's a little over 20%. So I think that when we talk about underrepresented groups, it's going to get even more complicated um, in the coming years. And the last point, just on, on what Camille was saying, um, I have five children, um, and when they go to school, they see the same images in this month, I imagine, that Camille's children do. And it is challenging, right? I don't want Camille's children feeling that way, and I certainly don't want my children to look at Camille's children that way. Um, and it's going to be a greater problem, I think, going forward with the changes that we see to our polity. And I think that's a more important conversation um, in a, than the one that we're often having, um, is how are we going to make this work? Um, so I think kind of these outdated notions of underrepresented groups, uh, kind of still stuck in the Baki paradigm, um, I think that they're going to have decreasing uh, relevance in the coming years. It, it's curious. If I can just make a very I'm, I'm, small inter. Oh, oh please, can I just make a small intervention yeah. on that point? Just because I, I do think the word underrepresentation versus historically disadvantaged or even presently marginalized, I think those are terms that are really important ones. And so I, I did want to just point out that those are, they might sound like splinters, but they really matter. And that the one that I was drawing on was more about historical disadvantage or present marginalization, as opposed to numbers, which is what I hear with underrepresentation. And I would agree uh, that it really complicates the landscape given what demographics look like now. Before you jump in, I, I do think it's interesting, Jesse, you alluded to something uh, with respect to the demographic composition at many universities and the fact that, you know, they're not actually aiming at parity broadly, that cert certain groups can be profoundly underrepresented. And I think that's true, that there is obviously a selective concern with respect to the groups that are being prioritized for precisely the reasons that I think Ming just alluded to, um, the notion that certain groups are disadvantaged. But my own perspective is that groups don't actually have attributes individuals do, and that the groups themselves are a bit of a contrivance the individuals may be themselves disadvantaged or not, but whether we should attribute primacy to historic disadvantages or the advantages of your literal personal lived experience, the fact that you perhaps grew up in a household with one parent or as opposed to two, or perhaps someone who wasn't your parent altogether or suffered some personal trauma, those things might be profoundly important. And I think we we seem to be in a place where we are determined to give, to grant race and other notions of kind of collective disadvantage or collective privilege, a kind of primacy. And when we do that, we necessarily lose some resolution. At a minimum, I think I could say, if I was going to say this in a slightly softer way, it's not hard for me to imagine, you know, attributing a characteristic like disadvantage to an individual. But the moment I start to zoom out from that, the larger that that grouping gets from the family to, say, uh, a census tract to a racial group to a religion, um, the reality is that I'm necessarily losing important resolution there. 
and I'm seeing things in a slightly different way. And I think that's the, that's the actual tension that I am perhaps most concerned about. And I don't know that that's necessarily reflected in a lot of the legal wrangling over these issues. And I will grant that, that some of this has been an active issue in, in courts, um, in jurisprudence uh, for a long time, but certainly amongst most people, the civil rights consensus for a very long time was kind of interpreted in a slightly different way than it is oftentimes described today in many in many corridors. So I'm not I've, I've opened up a lot of uh, different avenues there. Bajal, I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to the first prompt that I offered earlier about this kind of distinction between equity um, and equality. But I'm I'm happy to have you respond to anything that was just said a moment ago. Sorry, Camille, were you talking directly to me? I I, I wasn't. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I, I was inviting you to to comment on the earlier prompts, yeah, but I also mean, I, I anything I else think, that you'd like. I think uh, I'm not sure if we're doing professor or first name, but Professor Chen uh, uh, sort of did cover to me uh, what I was going to raise about the distinction between the sort of you know, the formalism of equality and the the kind of equity measures that have been taken by the administration mm-hmm. as of late. Um, you know, I mean, equity and equality, just for context, and because it's, I think, relevant to, particularly relevant to our conversation, those distinctions, I think, arose um, in unique ways in the educational context, right, where I don't know how many folks have seen this particular you know, I almost want to write it down, draw it and show you the notebook of it, but the, the sort of picture of two people of different heights being given the bo- a box that's the same size and, you know, the box is the same size. They've been given the equal number of resources, but still the person who's shorter can't see over the fence versus to have true equity, you would need boxes of different sizes in order to have everybody at the same level. So both can sort of get over that fence, right? And so that, that kind of imagery, I think, is, is useful to understanding in broad strokes the distinction between equity and equality and why equity, uh, is, is contextual and why it requires, um, you know, uh, measures beyond the kind of uh, formal concepts of underrepresentation and more of a focus on marginalization or historical inequality. I mean, I think my 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 kind of instinctive response to you as a parent myself also was, the more your little girl sees, <laughs> the more people like your little girl in that school, the less likely she is going to be viewed as the black girl, right? So that, <laughs> just, just putting it out there, right? If there is actually a critical mass of people who are representative of a community, then that no individual in that community is then the kind of the spokesperson for that community anymore. Um, so what that means for the sorts of measures we would need to see that in the schools, um, you know, we could talk about that, but that was my kind of quick thought. Um, and I think, I think that there are some studies enough, I, I, you know, I, I hesitate to, to disagree strongly with anyone on this panel, but there's enough sort of information out there suggesting that there are, um, experiences based in race, ethnicity, religion, um, you know, LGBTQ background, for instance, uh, uh, that have led, uh, to, uh, to have put people at a disadvantage in certain contexts to, to suggest that while individual experience is certainly important, that we can make, we can draw some conclusions about experience based in race uh, for the purpose of creating policies and approaches that then take into consideration um, the disadvantages that result from these experiences based in race. So um, I understand 
the kind of discomfort that people across all racial and ethnic spectrums have with being uh, viewed as something beyond an, an individual, right? Uh, maybe that is uh, an even more intensified experience for people of color uh, to the extent that they are they are often seen as representative of their community <laughs> in certain spaces. Um, and yet uh, we have to be careful not to, I think, sort of overstate um, uh, uh, overstate the drawbacks of understanding of understanding and taking into consider in consideration sort of categories of experience and identity. Um, some quick quick thoughts. Uh, yeah, I, I I certainly appreciate that perspective. To to clarify my own view, my my guidance to my children it never would never suggest to them that they should imagine that other people are representative of them on the basis of what they happen to look like. And while I am very familiar with a great deal of the research that suggests that there are these kind of commonalities in experience, I'm also familiar with uh, research that demonstrates that within the various groupings that we often talk about, there is tremendous diversity and there are plenty of different ways to break those up into subcategories and find disparities within groups that are larger than the disparities between groups. There is, to the extent we talk about kind of the arbitrariness of formalism, these, these things that are supposed to be rather objective, there's something kind of arbitrary as well about insisting on the race taxonomy, which per the discussion yesterday um, highlighted, um, is a bit of an invention. It is something that we have been habituated to but it is also something that we could decide that we're going to continue to place an emphasis on or that we are going to adopt perhaps a different perspective. And I think there's a meaningful discussion to be had about whether equity or equality or perhaps the advantages and disadvantages of adopting a perspective that is primarily focused on equity as a policy goal or equality as a policy goal. And I think there's probably been a lot of discussion about the risks of understating the importance of cons being concerned with race and inequality. Um, but there's very little discussion, it seems to me, um, about the risks of overstating our concern about those things and how that might be deranging in certain ways and might cultivate um, all sorts of other kind of bad things. Um, <clears throat> I'll maybe take a step back from that and ask a narrower question along the same lines um, about the the possibility of there being some some common ground found um, or a balance struck between people who would favor uh, a kind of more meritocratic approach, even if it's an imperfect meritocracy, um, and people who would favor uh, a more equity-based approach. Because it does seem to me that there, these things are somewhat irreconcilable. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about the degree to which you all think that they might be kind of meaningfully irreconcilable, um, or if that is the, the fact that the, the kind of pitch nature of the culture wars around these issues is actually not a function of any actual inherent inability to reconcile these two values. Uh, so I'll allow anyone who wants to to weigh in there. Well, I have, um, I'm kind of still thinking about the first question, but I can offer thoughts on the second too. Can I say a word about the first one? And then I promise I'll move I'd, to your second. I would be, I would be happy to keep it there. I just don't want to bog anyone down with my own particular interests, but no, I'm no, curious sure. about a range of things. So I would love to well, continue with the first question. So I, I promise I'll, I'll get to the second question too, oh, but on the first fine. question, because we all have mentioned our kids 
um, and I have one too. Hmm. Um, and, I, and I think it makes sense, right? Because so much of thinking about education and equity is thinking about not just the world that we're living in, but the world that we want to have, mm-hmm. right? The world that we want our kids to grow up in. Um, and so the, the story that I'm thinking about, as I mentioned, I'm living in San Francisco now, but I moved back here just a few years ago. And one of the top motivations was that I wanted to raise my child in a more culturally and racially diverse environment than the one that I had been living in for the last couple of years, last 10 years or so. And so here, here's the story that to me speaks about why this issue of individuals in groups is not completely arbitrary, um, because it might be that the world I would like to see normatively, right, the, the, the future world is one where people can be treated as individuals. But I think the reality is that certain individuals have not been treated by others or by the law as individuals. Right. And I think that's where affirmative action has to be understood as a remedial measure, right? Is to fix something and it's to fix that grouping that you're talking about. So, so here's the personal story. Um, so my daughter, when she was pretty small, was going to a summer camp, um, kind of program. And, you know, as a way of breaking the ice, every child was supposed to give two truths and a lie. Right. And one of the three facts she offered about herself is that she was from here. And everybody thought it was a lie, right? My daughter's a third-generation Asian-American child. I'm a U.S.-born citizen. She's a U.S.-born citizen. Her parents migrated, her grandparents migrated in the 1960s and have lived in the United States longer than they did in their home country. Why was it that everybody in her group assumed that she couldn't be from the United States, right? And I think that is an example of how she might like to be an individual, but she is treated as a member of a group, right? A partly fictive, but partly demographically accurate group where mm-hmm. Asian Americans are the fastest bo- fastest growing foreign born group. She just happens to not be one of the foreign born, mm-hmm. right? As an individual in the third generation yeah. in the United States. So, I mean, to me, that gives a little bit of perspective on sort of what we're working with, right? We're working with this very non-ideal world where socially and legally, people have not been treated um, as individuals, right? And so I like that ideal, but I don't know that we can just pick up and be there, right? It's almost a little bit of a luxury to say, I want to be treated as an individual. Uh, If you haven't been, had a group imposed on you by someone else, I'm not talking about you specifically, Camille, but I'm, you know. No, that's that's fine. In in fact, I mean, I, I, it's interesting that we both live in the same area, um, and I, I recently moved back here as well. And I'll tell you that I actually I feel like a minority, and I'm regularly mm. reminded that I'm a minority, sure. but not on account of my appearance. In fact, mm. to the extent I'm reminded of my appearance, it's generally by well-intentioned people who even, especially, I moved here in um, 2020, the year of the, the racial reckoning, and in 2021, mm. I can distinctly remember coming into contact with someone I'd never met before. And the first thing that she says to me in the course of our introductory conversation, we're both walking our dogs, is she apologizes for the history of colonialism and slavery. I'm in Tiburon. I live there. I'm fine. <laughs> this, this is strange. Um, and with your daughter's example, you know, the first question that came to mind when you described that scenario is, I wonder what the other two truths were um, or the other two things that she shared, one of which was a lie. It's possible that those things seemed much more fantastical or something like that. I mean, the, the reasons why people reach their conclusions are hard to know, 
it's also possible that to the extent people are more inclined to see race and to delineate between people between race uh, on account of race is because of the way that a lot of people motivated by noble intention have placed this front and center in our conversations and you know as a child of the 80s um, my own experience with race was meaningfully different um, than the experience that my daughter is likely to have the the constant drumbeat that she ought to be seeking representation by finding people who look like her, that Black Panther is a movie for her, that she can now finally connect to The Little Mermaid because there's someone who looks like her in it. It it doesn't just strike me as incorrect. It strikes me as almost retrograde. Um, but those are my views, and I'm fine with that. But I think it's important to acknowledge that there are plenty of people who agree with me and some of them look kind of like me, but I'm not even sure that latter point is all that consequential. Um, but again, I think it's just representative of the, of the fact that there is a particular value judgment that's being made here, um, which there's a kind of presumption about its moral efficacy. Um, but there's, there's going to be meaningful disagreement about it. And I think it's, again, it can be, it can be justified and defended. But again, I don't want to dominate the conversation here. Um, and I'm a little bit forgetting uh, where we are with respect to time and questions from the audience. Um, but I, I'd love uh, for anyone else to weigh in um, if there's time for that. Or Jace, you can push us to audience questions. We have a few more minutes left. And we have a couple questions from the audience. But I'm happy to let the con conversation keep going, too. This is great. Yeah. Anybody else want to weigh in? Okay, cool. Um, I, there was something I'm going to return to some of the notes I took while you all were, um, while you all were presenting affirmative action in, um, universities, I think is an interesting issue. Certainly been in the courts a great deal yesterday. I think it was just yesterday that I saw a story in Bloomberg that suggested that, um, uh, Yale, and this is somewhat related, um, that Yale was um, going back to using SAT in their admissions requirements uh, after having moved away from it precisely because they wanted to widen the aperture with respect to the kind of people that they were letting in. But they actually discovered, unbeknownst to uh, perhaps unexpectedly to some people, but not so much to me actually, uh, that the SATs and performing well on the SATs was a real opportunity for a lot of people from disadvantaged backgrounds, um, economically disadvantaged in this particular context. Um, and I'm curious about your thoughts on that decision and perhaps, Jesse, especially for you, given the, the writing that you've done about affirmative action and why it's still successful. It seems to me that, that it actually has somewhat of a, of a mixed, um, it's been somewhat of a mixed bag. Um, even if it's been, you know, regular, reliably popular amongst some groups, its ability to achieve its stated ends versus some alternative policies that might be uh, a, a little bit more neutral um, is at least something that is being newly debated now. Uh, when you say popular among its, uh, do you mean its beneficiaries? I mean, I mean, among among people who among people who uh, I mean, I, I imagine there are plenty of people who are presumed beneficiaries of the policies who don't who don't necessarily love it. Um, people who find themselves in positions, and then there are those questions about how they managed to get there, whether or not it was right. some privilege that was granted to them on behalf of uh, presumed disadvantage, um, and they may resent that. So it's possible that that's a thing as well. But I'm more so just re referring to 
evolving scholarship or at least evolving perceptions about the effectiveness of the policy in the way that that plays into its general um, kind of popularity. Yeah, uh, so just on the, the polling issue, I just want to clarify. When I was referring to the polling, I was referring to the way the general public thinks about affirmative action. It's generally opposed um, and recently overwhelmingly opposed. Um, and there's even strong opposition among the principal benef beneficiaries, uh, black people. Um, so I don't think it's quite a majority who oppose it. It obviously depends on how the question is, is framed. But I think something like 35, 40, 45 percent of blacks consistently oppose it. Um, so that's interesting in itself. But obviously, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who support affirmative action, um, and it matters that it's generally the people in power. So if you look at the amicus briefs, going back to Baki, it's generally a four-to-one, three-to-one rate in favor of affirmative action. Mm -hmm. um, Baki, I believe, itself only had like four or five briefs um, on Alan Baki's side. In terms of its efficacy, I mean, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, you're certainly producing uh, black lawyers, doctors, leaders, and so on. Uh, there are a lot of people who criticize affirmative action on the ground that many of those people are not actually the descendants of African-American right. slaves. A lot of first-generation um, Americans there. Yeah, uh, and a lot of biracial people. Um, mm -hmm. And also, there's decreasing socioeconomic diversity, a lot of institutions. There's decreasing regional diversity. There's decreasing ideological diversity. So we're producing a diversity of some variety, certainly through affirmative action. But it's corresponding with a lot of orthodoxy and lack of diversity on a whole host of factors that would contribute to the educational experience. Got it. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? I mean, I think Jesse is right to focus on for this efficacy question. It depends on what your goal is, right? And that's why I think it would be useful to have a bit more deference to universities as they define for themselves what they believe the purpose of their degree would be. Right. And so, you know, when we think about, for example, the role of Asian Americans in the in this affirmative action debate, um, you know, one of the things that that I've said publicly um, in an op ed is that I feel like one thing that's not always appreciated um, about Asian Americans is, yes, they might be numerically overrepresented in some of these elite universities. But if the test is not just whether you got in, but what you're going to do with your degree, that picture starts to look really different, hmm. right? I mean, you start, you don't see Asian Americans overrepresented in the leadership structure of almost anything, even in universities, even in the STEM profession. When you look to see who has the distinguished professor title as opposed to the pre-tenure title, if you look in the business world, if you look in law firms, like who is a partner, who's elected to Congress, right? And that says to me that you haven't made it just because you got in. Right. And so, I, I mean, I think that is um, a little bit lost sometimes when we get caught up in just this moment when an 18 year old receives an acceptance letter to a college. Mm -hmm. And I, I suppose when you apply the lens that Jesse was alluding to earlier, this notion that that even amongst the people who are getting in, who seem to tick the box and suggest that this is kind of working, look, more black people are ascending they are oftentimes people from privileged backgrounds um, in a meaningful sense. Uh, and the the fact that these policies may or may not actually work to, to aid people who are dealing with intergenerational um, challenges from an economic standpoint is a, is a real question that, I mean, I suppose there's always a risk uh, that by tailoring policies 
to address disparities in particular and say racial disparities or gender disparities, whatever you like, as opposed to tailoring the policies to, uh, to address disadvantage specifically, material disadvantage specifically, that when people encounter these disparities and see them perhaps not going away, and in some instances even getting worse, they begin to speculate about what might be going on there. And it could, that could look like a bunch of different things. You know, you're not trying hard enough, et cetera. Um, or even what I've seen recently, a kind of resurgence of race realist talk. Um, so it's, a, I think, perhaps an unintended consequence of, of some of these um, policy initiatives, um, that there could just be a perception that, well, why isn't it working? We've tried this equity thing, we're trying it, but it doesn't seem to be working. Um, is there is there any sense that there is uh, an awareness of that reality um, in the application um, or in perhaps even the jurisprudence around um, these, these rules? Is it merely a matter of uh, whether or not they can kind of be defended constitutionally or whether or not there's a precedent? Or is it consequential if it seems that the, the kind of public perception around these things might be an issue or the, the actual effectiveness of these programs might be uh, in doubt? Well, one of my concerns is that affirmative action discourse, uh, particularly in the Supreme Court, is extremely narrow and insulated from the realities of how it operates. Um, I mean, something missing from the conversation entirely is socioeconomic diversity. Um, you know, I live in a rural area uh, where probably the majority of the people at our you know, public school, um, their parents don't have a college degree. Um, there's no expectation that their kids are going to go to an elite college. Hmm. But we all know there's no affirmative action program for them. Um, and there's no expectation, you know, that they'll receive any benefits because they're socioeconomic or educational uh, backgrounds. I, I think that's just the reality of how it works and how it has worked. And as America continues in this direction, I'm sure you're all aware of many of the problems that are swallowing up rural America. This is not going to end well. Um, I think that creating this affirmative action culture and excluding a huge segment and a segment of the population that is struggling uh, is not going to create a healthy policy. Camille, just a quick note. To respond to the why isn't it working yet, I fear that my biggest contribution to this panel has been describing memes, but there is one <laughs> that is going around, which I also appreciate, which sort of shows a rainbow timeline. And I'm talking particularly about the Black community um, and why it might not be working in that context, which shows sort of when slavery began and the immense centuries of time that slavery existed, and then the period from the mid-late 1800s until the mid-1900s when we had effectively segregation and Jim Crow, and the very small period of time that can be sort of considered post-racial, which is not a phrase or term I use, but many mm -hmm. do, to any degree um, as compared to these long, long periods of time when people were effectively treated as property and then significantly disadvantaged, regardless of how they saw themselves as, as individuals. And so, you know, as I think many on the court would, the, the non-conservatives on the court would say, it's not, our job isn't complete yet, right? The benefits of affirmative action and the need for affirmative action hasn't gone away, um, even though in the view of many of those who wish 
to get rid of these policies, including many of the Supreme Court justices. That time has passed and we are now, you know, uh, in a post-racial space. So maybe it needs a little more time to work, given how uh, short the time frame of non-slavery, non-segregation um, history in the United States has, in fact, been. So uh, so that's my, my final meme, meme contribution of the conversation. Thank you for that. Uh, Jace, I see you back on the screen, so I'm going to defer to you here on how we proceed. I hate to intervene, and we started a few minutes late, but I promised everyone that we would wrap up at three. So unless anyone has any final thoughts, I just wanted to thank you all for being here and being willing to get down into the nitty-gritty of some of these really controversial issues. I think this has been a really productive conversation. Thank you all. Appreciate it. And for everybody in the audience... Uh, if you joined us late, you'll be able to find a rebroadcast of this webinar on our website, and that's administrativestate.gmu.edu. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter, and I'll send you an update whenever the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy publishes these essays. And I hope we'll continue this conversation moving forward. But I'd also not be doing my job if I didn't mention the other symposia that the Gray Center is partnered with other journals to sponsor. And we have soon forthcoming from the George Mason Law Review um, a symposium on the future of Chevron deference, which is something the court should be deciding in the next few months. And then with the Journal of Law, Economics and Policy, we have another symposium on the future of financial regulation. But with that, thank you all of you for joining us for this conversation, and we'll see you next time. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.